In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. I never had a fallback on purpose, and my dad used to say that all the time, you need a fallback, but I knew that this career was so difficult to succeed in that if you had a fallback, you would fall Mm -hmm. back, so I didn't have one. It's so great to be back here. In Boston, where I went to college, where I started doing stand-up comedy. Rosie O'Donnell has been a stand-up comic, an actress, a star search contestant, a talk show host, an activist, a philanthropist, a magazine editor, a Broadway and television producer, and a mom. Rosie has five kids. You have to manage your time and make each one of them feel special. Doing it all was a pattern Rosie established early. In high school, she was voted homecoming queen, prom queen, senior class president, and class clown. Rosie O'Donnell has never shied away from a controversial subject. Her combination of confidence and conviction has led to very public disagreements with celebrities such as Tom Selleck, Donald Trump, and Elizabeth Hasselbeck from The View. You just said our enemies in Iraq. Did Iraq attack us? No, I'm saying Al-Qaeda. Okay, Wait, did Iraq, Iraq attack us, Elizabeth? Iraq did not attack us, Correct. Rosie. We've been there before. Well, I'm you? saying our enemies, Al-Qaeda. Are you hearing that? But that oh, same combination led to her hugely successful talk show, The Rosie O'Donnell Show, in which she talked with celebrities and non-celebrities alike. Rosie talked about what mattered to them and to her. She earned herself the nickname, The Queen of Nice. Where are you from? I'm Toronto, Canada. And you came down here just for the show? I came just for the show. My husband drove me, uh, me and my friends 10 hours because I'm very afraid to fly. Where's your husband? He's, he didn't have tickets because my... I'm here... No, my... Well, my, where my is he now? He's friend, wandering outside 30 he's, Rock? He's probably watching the show freaking out that I'm here because I said I would be here. Is he still I, in Toronto? Or no, no, he's here. He's in New York. Where in New York? At her hotel, I guess. What hotel are you at? The Belvedere. Right on 52nd? Where, no, 48th and 8th. Hey, what's his name? Eddie. Eddie, get your butt down here! Rosie O'Donnell is nice. Get Eddie a I'm grateful for what she has. She might say that has something to do with her childhood, when she suffered the hardest blow imaginable. You know, my mother died. Right, so right. I How was old were you? Ten. So she died when you were ten. And there were two younger siblings and two older siblings. So that's... Right, so that was really hard. That's the shadow over everything. Yes, and it, and it's sort and of... And you were close to her. Not really. I mean, okay. I, I think that she was very Irish and reserved, like my father. There was no I love yous in the house. There right. was no hugging. You know, it was more like, like I went to Jackie's house all the time. My my best friend still lived across the street when I was a kid. And um, her mother would say, I love you to them. And I remember being struck like cold from that. Like you would say that to each other. Like no one said that to each other in my family Ever, until we were really older adults. And even then, it was difficult. So I remember when I had my first uh, child, when Parker was now 18, the I love yous were frequent and fluid. And, mm-hmm. you know, even now, I dropped my boy off at school this morning, mm-hmm. and he's 13. You know, I'm like, bye, Blakey, I love you. He's like, love you too, Mom. Like, casual, nothing, don't even. And that was so foreign to me as a child, and I craved it. I craved it. And when a mother dies in a family like that, things turn to disarray because the washing machine, the you know things that my dad just had no clue about. Like he mashed the potatoes in the water. Mm-hmm. He was trying to make mashed potatoes after she died. It's like all of the domesticity went out of the house and it was so kind of stark and cold and, and run down. And, you know, the things that a mother's touch generally bring to your life were missing. And that's all the 
all the softness and the, and the kind of safety and security. To prepare the family for a life without her, Rosie's mother taught each of her five children a different meal to cook. Rosie learned how to make London broil, which she says she still won't eat because of the memories it conjures up. In her hometown of Comac, Long Island, not far from where I grew up, Rosie began to plot out her future and a life in show business. You know, I never wanted to be a talk show host. That was never my goal. I wanted to be on Broadway. So, you know, I wanted to be a Bette Midler backup singer, one of the harlots. So when I was, you know, in, in Comac uh, High School South in 1979, and I would take the train in and see a matinee every Wednesday and cut out of school and, and do standing room. And so my goal was Broadway. And I saw Bette on Broadway in Clowns and a Half Shell, one of my first shows ever. That was my goal it, in Streisand. It was never to be, you know, I didn't grow up listening to Johnny Carson like every comic tells you. I didn't, you know, admire to be like... Joan Rivers. No, no, my mother didn't. And you didn't want to do stand-up either. No, I never even thought of it. My mother didn't like Joan Rivers. My mother thought she was mean. And I remember my mother telling me Toady Fields was a real comedian. Phyllis Diller was a real comedian. But that Joan Rivers is not nice. And she said, you never go far in life. Because Phyllis Diller was self-deprecating. Exactly. And Joan was made fun of Elizabeth Taylor, which I think to my mother was sacrosanct, you know. <laughs> so uh, I, I never, like, thought of it. So when I was in high school, I would do the play for the seniors, right? Everybody makes fun of the teachers and like, a Saturday Night Live type thing right. the senior year. And I was a freshman, and they knew that I was sort of into comedy, and they said, would you write the skits? So I did. So I was the only sort of freshman allowed to be, and for every year, sophomore, junior, I was writing these skits. So the last year, my senior year, this guy comes in and, and says, hey, did you write all this stuff? And I said, yeah. He goes, why don't you be a stand-up? I'm like, I don't know how to do stand-up. He goes, well, I own a club, Eastside Comedy Club in Huntington, near you. Why don't you come and do stand-up? What, okay, what, <laughs> what year is that? That is 1978. What is a stand-up comedy club like in Huntington in 1978? Well, I was 16 years old. I just got my license, but I wasn't really old enough to get into clubs. So I took my neighbor Dory Norton's license. Remember when they were paper and you could take a, a little pin and scrape your... So I had fake ID to so get in. So your whole career is built on a crime, actually. Without a doubt. Okay, okay, I was great. impersonating Dory Norton. Right. Um, so I went in and, you know, when you're 16 years old, you're fearless, right? Also, everybody I knew from my high school showed up that night because it was uh, a Saturday night or something and he let me go on and do a few minutes and I killed because everybody I knew was in the room, right? So I'd make jokes like, Maryland's going out with Mitchell and Mike doesn't know. And all my friends would be like, ah! I made fun of the teachers, like common things. That So the owner said, well, that was really good. Why don't you come back tomorrow? So I went back the next night. I didn't know anyone. It was a school night. I bombed like you have never, <sighs> oh, my God, like a horrible death. And I went home and I thought, I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm watching um, Merv Griffin and I see Jerry Seinfeld. And I see him doing his act and talking like this. <laughs> and I remembered his act. You know, there were no VCRs then. But I remembered, like, you know, my car stopped and I open up the hood. And I'm thinking, what am I looking for? An on-off switch? On-off? And I'm thinking, <laughs> hey. And so I remembered yeah. it. Yeah. So like the, we had to back then. Right. So the club owner called me again, Richie, and said, come back. Why don't you come back? You were good that first night. And so I come back and I do Seinfeld's act almost verbatim. And I get off stage and Richie and... You know, a bunch of other comics are standing around and said, where'd you get that material? I said, uh, this guy named Jerry, who was on Merv Griffin yesterday. They go, you're not allowed to do that. I'm like, why not? They go, you have to write your own jokes. I'm like, wait a minute. Wait. Streisand doesn't write her own songs. Did, did you do well? Did the audience like of it? Of course. And you're sitting there going, didn't you hear those yeah, I was people? Going, they were laughing. They're a, loving me. A joke's a joke. I don't have to write the jokes. What are you, nuts? Barbara Streisand. Harold Arlen wrote those songs. Right. Not she doesn't Sinatra. write that stuff. And so, you know, the, then I, they said, well, why don't you just hang around here and uh, you can watch. So I started watching, right? I started going there almost every night, watching comics. And what was then, the crowd like? Well, back then, you know, it was sort of the heyday. It was starting with the heyday. Like, Eddie Murphy had just gotten on Saturday Night Live. Right. So somebody from our little club broke out to the, the big time. And it, comedy clubs were kind of hot in the mm -hmm. 80s. You know, I sort of hit— It was new. Yeah, I hit the wave at the, exactly the right time. Lorne Michaels said that to me once. He said that when Saturday Night Live started back then in the mid-70s, 75, he said there were like— Six comedy clubs in the United States. Exactly. And you knew every stand-up working. Right. There was a time when I started where I knew every female comic working, working in the country. Right. right. And everybody knew each other and everybody would help each other. Hey, there's a club Tickles in Warren, Ohio. Right. I can talk to the guy for you. you Giggles. Right. Yeah. You wouldn't have to audition because you knew somebody who went there. And a lot of times I'd go to the clubs and they'd pick you up in a car at the airport and, and they'd have a sign and they'd be driving you back to the comedy condo and the guy'd go, you know, you're the fourth girl I had. The last three sucked. If you ain't good, I'm never booking a girl again. 
I was like, no pressure. You know, just my entire gender is riding on this. So, um, you know, the comic called me and said, come back. And then I did. I was hanging out there. And then I would do open mic night. So Shirley Hemphill, do you remember what's happening? Uh-huh. Big heavy black lady. Uh-huh. She played. Okay. She was the headliner. Now, that was a big deal in 1980, right? She's the headliner and she's there a day early watching open mic night. I come off the stage. She comes over to me. She goes, little one, little one, come here. I said, yeah. Now, I'm an 18-year-old kid, Alec, but I look about 14, right? Sure. And she says, "Um, you're funny. Come with me. She takes me in through the kitchen to Richie's office and says, I want her to open for me this weekend. And he goes, no way. She's too new. She doesn't have any act. She says, I want her to MC. I want her to open and do every show, and I want you to pay her 25 bucks a night. That was $100. I was 18 and in high school. I thought my head was going to explode. You were Kennedy. Yeah, exactly. My head was going to explode. And so she really helped my career. I started doing that, and then I, I never stopped. And you did that until it, Star Search was 82? Uh, 84. 84 yes. was when you were on. Right. Now, obviously, this idea of the talent search show, this goes back to Leonard Sillman on yep. Broadway years. I mean, we, we, this has been forever. And then, then, of course, there's a renaissance of this now with the voice and the this and the hand and the foot and the tongue and every right. other show. Right. What was that like back then for you? Well, it was unbelievable because unlike— Star Search was big. Huge, And unlike today, where there are so many media platforms and there are so many shows like it, we had four channels, five maybe. And I remember my Nana, whenever somebody was on, like Toadie Fields was on Merv Griffin or the Don Ho show, which was on at 12 in the afternoon, I'd have my Nana press play and record on the cassette player so I could listen to Toadie Fields on the shows that I would miss at school. And I think back about that now and it's kind of trippy. So the TV was the fireplace. Oh, my God. Totally. So what happened was... Star Search was so popular, and I was on the second season. Comics had two minutes, 120 seconds to do material. Did you have a clean routine? Oh, Did yeah. Did you always have a clean routine? Oh, no, not in clubs necessarily, but right. I had you know enough you stuff. You had a, a primetime routine. The problem was I kept winning. So I had enough clean material for like five weeks, and then I kept winning. So I called up comics who were my friends and said, can I use that bit about this? Can I use that? And they, a lot of them said yes. You know, Jeanette Barber let me use a lot of bits. Carol Henry let me use bits. And, you know, I had people trying to help me. And so then I, I lost and, and I eventually, but I won like, God, like it was like $12,000 or like $14,000. And yeah. I remember thinking, I couldn't believe it. Sure. I couldn't believe it. I went for the final $100,000 thing and I lost. And uh, I remember never being so nervous in my life. You know, TV was so different back then. In 1984, they put you up at the Sunset Strip, right? It was at Sunset and Vine where mm-hmm. they Uh, filmed it. And I didn't have any money, right? They'd give you per diem, but I didn't know to get per diem. So I had all that I had in my pocket was like, you know, $40. So I'd walk every day to Carney's, you know, that hot dog stand on Sunset. And for a dollar forty, you could get fries, a small Coke and a hot dog. And that's all I had. Let's welcome her back. Here's Rosie O'Donnell. So it's so funny. You watch it. You watch me losing weight every single week (laughs) because I didn't I didn't really, you know, but I ended up winning all this money. And I went from being an opening act to being a headliner from Star Search overnight. But it really did help my career doing Star Search. After I did the show, I was up for a part in a movie. I said, you can have the part. Can you drop the New York accent? I said, sure. (laughs) But the only way I can drop the New York accent is if I open my eyes really wide and actually think about everything I'm saying. The only problem is I can't act this way. The only thing I could be is a contestant in the Miss America pageant. And then you get into the movie business. Then I become a VJ. I do Star Search, and then I do Give Me a Break. What happened was I was um, at a comedy club, and Lorne Michaels was there with Cher and Brandon Tarnikoff. And it's called Igby's Comedy Club. And I still live. Okay. And Dana Carvey was, was auditioning to get on SNL. And I was the next comic up. And the waitresses were my friends. And they said, we're not dropping the check until after you're set. So while Brandon and they wanted the check because mm-hmm. they had seen Dana, I was on and I killed. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, I had a decade under my belt of doing stand up. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, they came up to me after the show, Brandon Tarnikoff, and said, hi. I want you to call this number at NBC tomorrow. We have a job for you. And I called my sister. It was like 3 in the morning, New York time. I said, I got on SNL. Oh, my God. Brandon Tarnikoff was here with Lauren Michaels, and I am going to be on SNL. And I walk in the next day to NBC, and they said, we're going to put you on Give Me a Break. And I was like, <laughs> Now, I was still thrilled to be on TV. And so that was the show. I did about 10 episodes of that in the last season. 
with a very unhappy Nell Carter, which was a very shocking thing to me because I had this mm-hmm. image that everybody on TV was friendly mm-hmm. and happy and it was utopia. And I had seen her in Broadway and mm-hmm. Bubbling Brown Sh- and Bubbling Brown Sugar right, as well, go. Uptown. Right. But that was my first thing. I did give me a break. After that, that was 86 and then 88, they were auditioning VJs for VH1 and at the Improv with Bud Friedman. And I went there and I, I did my set and the guy came out and he said, you're really good, but you don't really look like MTV. And I said, I know. And he goes, but we have another station, VH1. And at that time, it was Rita Coolidge. I don't know if you remember. Right, but yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, he said, you want to audition for that? You'd have to fly yourself to New York. I said, all right. So I flew when myself. played White Wedding oh, like 90 times a day. Exactly right. Yeah. And they said, you know, you can audition. So I went on camera and I auditioned and uh, went home to L.A. And then I wrote him a thank you note. Steve Leeds. I said, thanks for the shot. I really appreciate it. And he was so moved that somebody wrote him a thank you note that he sent the tape over to the VH1 people. The guy who was hiring is named Ed Harrington, very Irish guy. Mm-hmm. He saw Rosie O'Donnell right. and he hired me. So it was a thank you note that got me How to How long be- did you do that? I did that for about two years. What I- was that like? It was- Because it seems like for the person who wanted to, the clams on the half shell career- Yeah. You meander and go yeah. here and here where it takes you. What was it like for you to be doing that? Well, that everyone show? everyone said not to do it. People who were, quote, unquote, advising my career, like Bud Friedman or, you know, I didn't even have an agent really then. So why did you do it? Because I knew it was in 23 million homes, and I thought that it would teach me how to be conversational versus presentational. Mm-hmm. Presentational is what you do with stand-up. You've already prepared it. It's a wrapped package. Mm-hmm. They undo the bow. They undo the it's thing. It's a one-way and street. Kaboom. There's the joke, right? Okay. But this is more conversational. Can you carry on a conversation with a camera and treat it like a person? And I thought it was a skill that would really help me, and I also thought... That many millions of people seeing you, you can't say no. If you've never seen Elton John in concert, I am urging you to do it, folks. I've done it a lot, and I love it. I'm going to see him Thursday night, and my sister's going to see him tonight. Was it also about money? It was $100,000. Because I I don't want to assume, but are you like me, where a lot of the decisions I made was about money? Yeah. At that time, I was like, you know, 21 maybe. And uh, to get 100 grand, because I remember saying to them, I'm giving up a lot of money to not go on the road, because I was making good money on the road. and. You would have to definitely cover that. And so they came up with a hundred grand. So what I would do is it was eight hours a day, but you could film that in about two hours. It was four breaks an hour at two minutes a break. So they would give you the pitches that you had to do, like, you know, this is Rosie O'Donnell coming at you on VH1, Video Hits 1, the other music television. That was Whitney Houston, her seventh single off her debut album. Whitney Houston is doing VH1 A Go-Go, our dance show, only here on VH1 Saturday nights, 8 to 11. You do have a good memory. But that was about 14 seconds. Now I had a minute and a half left to fill. And there's nobody but me and two cameramen. Right. So my goal was to get the cameraman to, to laugh, laugh so that the camera would jiggle, right? right? So that was that was my goal. I want to go back and see tapes and see if I can find that jiggling camera. I bet you can. I bet I can. Yeah. And so I did that for about two years, and that's how Penny Marshall saw me. She saw you on VH1? Yep. I had just gotten an agent, and I sit next to this woman on a plane in coach, and she's very bitchy to the stewardess. And she's saying, I ordered a salad, and I start making her laugh. I'm like, here, take my salad, give me a dessert. You're such a... And I put her her luggage, and I was just making her laugh, right? And so it turns out she's an agent. She's a new agent at William Morris. She's Julia Roberts' agent's assistant, okay? So I'm like, wow, that's pretty big for me. So I start talking to her, and, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going out to audition for a game show. And she's like, oh... And uh, good luck. So I don't see her. You know, I dropped her a note or something. And then six months later, I sit next to her again on another plane. <laughs> Is that the weirdest story? Mm. And I, she said, what are you doing? I said, I got offered win, lose, or draw for kids on Disney. They're going to pay me $50,000 a year, five-year contract, and I'm going to host that show. And she said, you're not, and I'm now your agent. And we're too close to God for me not to intervene, and it's too weird to sit next to you twice. What's her name? Risa Shapiro. Oh, you have Risa Shapiro. Yes. Of course. Yep. And did she remain your agent for how long? She did for tw- probably 20 years. Right. And then um, she sort of, what happened, you know, William Morris and they all. And, Disintegrated. It, yeah. Right. And they fired all the women. People say to me, why are you so bitter sometimes about Hollywood? I said, it just, because it just, it's so foreign to me. I said, these are the guys who, they could come into my house in the middle of the night and rape my mother and torture my mother. And then six weeks later, they'll call you and they'll go, listen, I know I raped your mother. And mm-hmm. I tortured your mother. But, but I've got a script. It's a great part for you. I mean, come on. Well, you know, I have a really interesting uh, <laughs> thing that reminds me of. I did a movie for Hallmark called Riding the Bus with My Sister, and Angelica Houston directed it. And uh, she's an amazing director, and I, I love her as a person. It was done, and she handed in her cut, and apparently Hallmark didn't like it. So they recut it, and they sent it to me, and they said, if you sign off on this cut, 
we'll go over Angelica's head and we'll do an Emmy campaign for you to be nominated for this much money. And I said, do you realize that that is Hollywood royalty? Mm -hmm. That is John Houston's daughter? Do you get that? She's an Academy Award winner and you're a corporate guy in a suit who's Mm -hmm. not an artist. What are you doing? So I said, no. And and she called me. She was crying on the way to the the meeting. She said, you know, you should be dipped in gold, O'Donnell. And she goes, not many people in Hollywood would do that, which even made me sadder. Like, that not many people would do that. But you're on the plane. Risa Shapiro says, no way you're doing win, lose, or draw. Right. What happens? And she um, becomes my agent. She gets a phone call. Hi, do you represent that VJ? Can she play baseball? She calls me up. She says, can you play baseball? Can she play baseball? I said, if there's one thing I can do better than Julia Roberts, <laughs> it's baseball. And uh, so I went and I auditioned for the movie. You had to play baseball to even get a reading. And I, of course, am very good at baseball. So um, then it was Penny uh, calling back. But anyway, I, I went in. It was from her seeing me. I went in and uh, got the part. And then not Madonna. That's your first movie. Right. Oh, no. My first movie was with, with your brother. Was. I have forgot about that. Car 54, where are you? Oh, with, with Daniel. With Daniel, yeah. right. When I was a VJ. No, but you, you but you omit that. You left that out, which I do as well. I did a movie which I pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, I almost forget it happened. I literally, on my resume, there's a movie, I have just deleted it. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and people will say, what's the first movie you made? I say, she's having a baby with John Hughes. And they'll go, that's not necessarily true, because in 1985, you made this movie. And I go, no, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yeah, no, I didn't. Well, this movie uh, was not released, right? <clears throat> so when the time that I did League of Their Own, League of Their Own came out first right. because they held it on the shelf. And then after the success of like the Flintstones and Sleepless and League, then they released so it. So everywhere you're going, you're showing up obviously with stand-up and then you're making the guys laugh and jiggle the camera. And there's a velocity and a pace and an energy to what you're doing. And now you're making movies and does that become a different muscle for you? Do you sit there and go, man, this is slow and boring? And- yes, but I love the camaraderie. I love Love the did. set of League of Their Own with all the people playing baseball Tom. and the oh not it's the actors the camera guys right. and like you know all of the crew doing the thing where they pick the cards and yeah. you form a family and, exactly and yeah. it was so loving and so beautiful and stand up you're alone you're going on these clubs you know right. for ten years fifteen years I was alone on the road you know I'd go by myself I'd get in a plane and I'd fly to someplace in the middle of the country and they'd pick me up and you and, feel homeless yeah and you and, feel and, and, lonely. In a minute, Rosie O'Donnell recalls her reaction when Ellen DeGeneres told her she was coming out of the closet on her sitcom, Ellen. And I remember thinking, why the hell is she doing this? She's going to ruin her entire career and her life. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive. More in-depth conversations with artists, policymakers, and performers like Stacy Keach. I think the hardest thing about Hamlet is, is uh, you know, is, is after that amazing duel in the last act when he dies, you know, is not to be caught breathing on stage. Hear from Stacy and fellow actor Michael Douglas at heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fit's true wireless custom fit earbuds. 
Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking Lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Rosie O'Donnell claims she had a career in film simply because she could play baseball, that she was the only actress in Hollywood who could throw from third to first. It's my friend Doris, best player on the team. Thank you, May. You're the best. <laughs> it was an important 1992, thing. Rosie played Doris Murphy in A League of Their Own, a fictionalized account of the real-life All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. The film was a huge break for Rosie. When they said that Madonna was going to be playing my best friend, you know, we had all been cast, and Penny said that to me. She's going to come in, you have to make her laugh, and hopefully she'll do the film. Like, I had diarrhea. I thought, Madonna? Madonna? How do you be friends with Madonna? What the hell? Like, you know, in our lifetime, I'm 51 years old. We're almost the same age, right? And to see her at 20-something explode like she did. And I remember she had been friendly with Sandra Bernhardt a little bit. And as I was a VJ thinking, how can you be friends with her? How could somebody be friends with, like, Elvis, like Madonna? And here I am playing her best friend. So I knew when she was cast in that role that my career was going to take a whole different trajectory because of it. And it did. And for you, that experience of working with her, it was positive. It was positive and it was sisterly. Like, you know, some people have said to me, I thought you guys were lovers. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Like, you know, <laughs> some, even Sandra said to me she once. She begged me. I told her, get away from me, Madonna. <laughs> Please. I'm such an Irish Catholic girl. Like, you can count on both hands how many people I've been with my entire 51 years. You know, my friend, I don't, I don't know. It never crossed my mind because I met her the day after I saw Truth or Dare. Right. And in that movie, Truth or Dare, she goes to her mother's grave and it's her own name on her mother's grave. And my mother... Same experience. My mother's name is my name. Mm-hmm. So when I went to see her grave, when I finally got my license at 17 years old, there I saw for the first time Roseanne O'Donnell. And it's flippy to think to yourself, mm-hmm. I know someone else who experienced that same thing. So when I met her, I said, I saw your movie yesterday, and my mom died when I was little, and I'm named after her too. And, there, and it was like right away, we had a sister thing, you know, right away going on. Now, Penny's in the kind of comedy college of cardinals there she did the hit show she's funny as hell right was she helpful to you as a director or did she just leave you alone how, how did oh you work God. as an she, actor she was amazing because she i love to improvise and i come to find out later in all the movies i did after that not every director likes this but she would go you know okay somebody gotta go over there catch a ball fall in the stick come up with a hot dog who could do it now seriously half the time people didn't understand what she was saying yeah so I'd raise my hand and she'd go, Rosie, again? All right. So my part was not really that big. And she kept giving me all this extra stuff to do. And uh, if you got one take, she'd go, try it again. Like, she'd get the grip. The guy who played my dad was the grip. And he'd come down and he looked Irish, an older guy. And uh, she said, okay, put a hat on him. He'll be your father. And let's talk about a steak dinner near the bus. Go. Like, so it was a lot of improvisation, which for me is great. Like doing, you know, curb Mm -hmm. your enthusiasm Mm -hmm. like you do. I know so well. I love that. I mean, that's, to me, the most fun because it's like stand-up where you can go anywhere and say anything you want. Did you go right into another film before uh, League got released? Yes, I did Sleepless in Seattle. Right, exactly. And now, so yeah, I did League and it wasn't out yet. And then my agent— And now a woman who—I mean, Penny is discerning and Penny is you know, well-regarded as a director and so forth. But now you go and work with a woman who was the most discerning and who has the most options. And who I'm so— And could have cast anybody and had anybody—and she chose you. And I'm so intimidated because it's Nora Ephron and right. I've read every single thing she ever wrote in her right. life. And I knew about her sister and her parents and what they had written. So I go into the Apthorpe, into her big— you know, apartment that has a library full of, and I'm looking at what book she's reading, and I'm, you know, and she calls me in, and uh, she says hello, and I say hello, and I'm so, like, happy to be there, and we clicked right away, and, and she's like, wow. She goes, wait a minute, and she goes and gets the script off the facts that Delia had been working on and pieces of a new scene, and she goes, read this, and I read that, and then uh, I left, and I called my agent in the car and said I got the job, 
And she said, you know, this is your second movie audition. You don't really understand. You got the first one, but you're not probably going to get this. And I said, no, I got the job. And I did. And the the reason Nora told me was that night at dinner, she said, oh, I, I interviewed this girl today. I think I might hire her. Her name's Rosie O'Donnell. And her son, Jacob, who was 10 at the mm-hmm. time, who was a Madonna freak, mm-hmm. was like, oh, my God, Mom, I know her. And he ended up being a gay man now who was a writer mm-hmm. at the, uh, the, Times. the Times, right, a great guy. And, and then Nora ended up getting me an apartment in the Apthorpe after the movie. And Jacob used to come over to my apartment and tell me about his being gay and not knowing how to tell his mom. And so I sort of helped. What did you tell him? Oh, I helped him come out. His mother knew. But you know, his mother said to me, do you think he's gay? I'm like, yes, I do. Right. And he was like 10 or 11. She goes, I think he might be, too. I said, yeah, he is. Some nights I'd come home when he's like 14. He's drunk outside. I'm like, come here. You're going to go up to my apartment. Come with us. I would take him up to the apartment. I would call Nora. I would go, I have him. I'll bring him back in a little while. Right. It was like living in Queens. Yeah. Everybody knew each other. Yeah. But he was a great kid. And, you know, I have pictures of him playing with Parker, you know, when Parker was a baby. And, and then I have a picture of them when we did Love Loss and what I wore at the opening night. Parker, six foot something standing next to Jacob. Right. And it's just so weird how life goes like that. I'm not big on the whole gay identity thing in terms of, you know, that that story, because I'm sure you've exhausted that. But what I'm curious about is how, over the arc of a long career now, that's changed for you. And it was being a gay woman, being a gay performer, uh, going back to, you know, 78, if you were at the club in Huntington, on through now. It's many, many years. Yes. It's uh, 35 years yep. uh, since you were a kid doing this stuff. How's that changed for you? Remarkable, the amount of change that's happened just in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, I was coming out of therapy two weeks ago in Nyack, New York, and I see two high school girls holding hands walking through the parking lot. And like, I almost fill up with tears. I stopped them. I said, excuse me. No, they have no idea, right? The, there's a cutoff. My fame is over, right? Now, I know there were people well. who still, but it's not like it was, right? So I said, excuse me. And they sort of like, what's this old lady's talking to me? I said, I just want to tell you that uh, I'm a 51-year-old gay woman. And as a gay woman, to see you two girls, what are you in high school? They're like, yeah, we're in 10th grade. To see you holding hands in the middle of town, walking through, it just, it moves me so much. And they're like, oh, really? Oh, thanks. All right. See ya. (laughs) Here I am like, come here, mommy. But I don't know. You know, people sort of knew that I was gay, in my opinion, in show business, because I never hid it. It's never like I pretended to have a boyfriend or, although people say I did that with Tom Cruise, but it wasn't a sexual thing with him. I still have a crush on him, you know, but it's not like I, I wanted to screw him. I just thought, God, that is a... That is something about I like to have breakfast with him. Exactly. I like to have him, you know, with no shirt on, painting something in my house, you know, and then leaving after he gave me— Serving you breakfast. Exactly right. So anyway, people knew is what I thought, right? But I remember, like, when Ellen called me up and said, I'm going to have my character, Ellen Morgan, come out as a lesbian on my TV show. And I remember thinking, why the hell is she doing this? She's going to ruin her entire career and her life. It was such a foreign concept. This is pre-Will and Grace, okay? No one had ever even considered it. The only people who were out were rock stars. Right. There was no actor or actress or comedian who was out, mm-hmm. you know? And I remember th- even Charles Nelson Riley wasn't out. Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> absurdly gayish people. Yeah. And I remember thinking she's making a huge mistake, you know? And then there was that tremendous amount of fallout that happened afterwards. I was like, it would pained me for her. It really did. Now, listen, in hindsight, oh, my God, the courage that it took for her to do that at the time she did it and the way she did it uh, was pretty unbelievable. Mm -hmm. You know, I I did not possess that. And so she did that. And then Will and Grace came on. And I remember them telling me at my uh, show, oh, there's a new sitcom that's starting. It's about a gay man living with a straight girl. And uh, I go, well, that'll never work. Do you remember Love, Sydney with Tony Randall? Right. He had his dead partner's picture on the mantle, and the Catholic Church was protesting, and it was off in two weeks, and this was Tony Randall, right? So uh, I thought that'll never work. So then Will and Grace comes on. Not only does it work, it blows up. Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. It's like the society, culture, we've changed in such a quick amount of time that people don't even realize it, you know, to think that in my lifetime, in my career, that you can be an out performer, actor, Playing against type, Neil Patrick Harris, playing a womanizer on that show, mm-hmm. be out married with twin boys, mm-hmm. and it doesn't hurt your career, and it doesn't do anything to you, you know. So in a way, it's the most beautifully astounding, inspirational thing that I can think about in, in my 51 years of living. Now, in the time that you, from being a young woman and a performer in this business, and you're making your way, and you're succeeding, and you're a gay woman, did you ever think about 
marriage, kids, family? Like, when did that Polaroid begin to become more in focus for you? I always knew I wanted kids. You did? Always. But I never thought I would get married to a man. I mean, I didn't really think— Except Tom. Of course, but he, he could be the he could be the donor. I, yeah, I would not have turned that down. But uh, no, I just you know I dated one guy when I was twenty eight for about a year and a half, two years. His name was Mike. We lived together. Great guy, six foot one or six foot two. I had only dated two women before that. I just sort of didn't do it at all. It was just like you know whatever. And, I'm busy. Um, yeah, yeah, I got a career <laughs> plan, and. Uh, so um, I dated this guy, and I remember thinking, maybe I'm not gay. Look at this. Maybe I'm not gay. But uh, it turned out, you know, I was wrong. So uh, that was the only time that I thought to myself, well, maybe I am straight. Maybe this – I don't know what this is. Maybe, um, you know, because it's, it's like what people don't understand about homosexuality. It's not that you can't have satisfactory sex with the opposite gender. It's just that your heart and your soul and your connection and your desire for emotional intimacy is only really served by – uh, somebody of the same sex. That's interesting. I've never heard anybody articulate it that way before, ever. Yeah. That, I've, n- I've never heard anyone say that. I mean, but so there was a period, Mike was his name? Yeah, Six Mike. Two, Mike? Yeah. You still in touch with him? Um, not so much, but uh, we had been for about 10 years. Well, I was 28. I'm 50 now, right? No, no, so it was no, half a life ago. But uh, I did, did you s- leave all those people behind? Did you shed a skin when you became famous and went into the business? Because for me, all my friendships began when I got in this business. It's interesting. It's so defining to me. I have two friends, Jeannie and Jackie. They're my friends since I was in elementary school. And they're still my best friends. And the three of us see each other at least, you know, Jackie probably twice a week. Jeannie probably because she's out on the island at least once a month. And the three of us are like sisters and they're family to me. Jackie's mother raised me. You know, after my mother died, I would eat dinner at their house like five nights a week. She bought me my first bra. She bought me, you know, tampons when I needed them as a kid. She was a mother, mm-hmm. right? So, and she's still alive, Bernice. And so I see Jackie uh, like like a sister all the time. But aside from those two, I don't see anyone from high school. Mm-hmm. I don't see anyone from my old stomping grounds on Long Island. And most of my friends, aside from those two, are friends that I met in this business. Mm-hmm. Because it's very hard to, for people to understand. It is lonely. I mean, it's yes. so lonely. And this it's hard to explain so it to someone else yeah. because they it's held up as the be-all and end-all. It's held up oh. as – and it, it really isn't. The reality of it is very different than what you expected from it. I'll never forget. This is going to seem mundane perhaps, but this really defines what I'm talking about. I remember I would be sitting like – I'm in the Canadian Rockies shooting a movie with Tony Hopkins. And I'll never forget my assistant would FedEx me my mail. And I pick up this thing and it says, you know, the the dates of the bacon exhibit at the Met and it's going to close and I'm not going to get back there. I'm going to miss the bacon exhibit. I felt so awful because I thought I'm missing my life. I'm missing everything. Like when I did 30 Rock, people say, why did you love 30 Rock? I said, because they would work the schedule with me. But when you're in the movie business, they are so punishingly unempathetic. Because they got 90 days to do it. They got to get this thing done. And That's right. Cutting days and cutting costs is what they're all about. Well, I remember when I was on my talk show and you were saying, I really want to get a sitcom. I really you want to do a sitcom with me. Remember we were talking about What did it? I tell you? Right. You I said, said, we're going to do Jackie Gleason and you're Jackie Gleason and I'm Audrey Meadows. Yeah. I said, you're going to be the brassy, yes, tough character and exactly. I'm going to be your withering husband. Right. So I remember when people were saying that there was a show, 30 Rock, and Alec Baldwin, and some people were saying to me, he's not going to do a sick. I'm like, yes, he is. You know, because I knew, because I had spoke, we had spoken about it, how taxing it is. And I knew what you were craving was some kind of a normal schedule. Like a sitcom is the perfect gig for every actor. If you could get a 30 minute sitcom, I think that, you know, one hour drama is just like doing a movie for nine months in a row. It's exhausting. In a minute, Rosie O'Donnell shares what it's like to be a new parent in your 50s. I'm all ears. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym... Avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $8.99. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. 
No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash Spotify. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Rosie O'Donnell has supported kids' charities for most of her career. At age 33, she adopted a child of her own, a baby boy, Parker. The balancing act between motherhood and career, particularly in the entertainment industry, took her by surprise. When uh, Parker was a baby, you know, I, I didn't know anyone who had a nanny. I grew up like you did. That was an unheard of thing. I didn't even know anyone who had a babysitter, right? right. Besides somebody who'd come over for three hours when your parents went to, you know, Red Lobster. Right. So um, I did Harriet the Spy, my first movie, after he was born. And he was about three or four months old, maybe five months old. And I took him to Canada to film. And I asked my cleaning lady to come with me to watch him because I didn't have anybody to help. So she came, and the third day that I came home from a 12-hour day on the set, he wouldn't come to me. I went, come here, buddy, and he, would cry. he wouldn't. He was staying with Maria. And I remember at that moment, I called my agent and said, you need to get me a job that's going to keep me in New York because I don't want him growing up on movie sets. I want him to have his own bedroom. I want him to know his cousins. I want him to have a normal life. And so that's the reason I did my talk show was because I wanted— You and I, it's a mirror. That's why I did 30 Rock. And and my daughter lived in L.A., but I said to Lauren, he said, what's it going to take? I will give you off every Monday and every Friday. Any weekend you want to go to go see your daughter who was in L.A., which in the beginning I would do. And then as my daughter got older, I mean, I stopped going— Every other weekend, because like I would drive out there and like drive my daughter to a party and drop her off. Believe me, I know. Yeah, I have teenagers yeah, and it's right. hell. Now, we, now we, but when does the, the the moment come? You're like, let's have the baby. Let's get this pot on the stove and get this thing going. What happens? Well, I did um, all those movies in a row that like the number one movie three summers in a row. Right. So first I did uh, League and then Sleepless in Seattle and then the Flintstones. Well, that's pretty astonishing, you know, especially because it's like I wasn't a trained actress. I was I'm a, a comic. Right. I didn't even really go to college. I went for one year. So I thought that was pretty astounding. And um, I wanted to do Broadway and Grease was coming out. So I called my agent and said, I want to go do that. She's like, are you kidding me? You're on this role movie wise. And I'm like, but I really, really want to do it. So I'd saved a lot of money. You know, I spend uh, wisely. I'm not like a big, I don't go buy clothes and shoes and stuff. And so I... Uh, You're at the sale rack at the Gap. I read Exactly. That. It's yeah. the truth. So I, I went and um, auditioned for Greece and I got it on Broadway. And I said, when I'm done with this run, I'm going to adopt a baby. So I was 32. How long did you do Greece? A year. And can I tell you, Alec? Dear Lord in heaven, it was like Groundhog Day, the movie only without Bill Murray. Oh, my God. It was, I couldn't, I would love to do Broadway again, but I would never uh, commit to that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah, Lord help me. I just got off of Broadway. I know. I'm sorry I missed it. But boy, that's something. That's something. And uh, so I decided I was going to adopt a baby. And and it wasn't, I wasn't dating anyone. It wasn't like, you know, I was, uh, I saw, I was seeing a girl who was in the, cast of Greece, but I, it wasn't like we were going to have kids together. I was going to adopt this baby. And she's like, well, what about me? I'm like, well, I don't know about you, but this is what I'm doing in my life. And so I adopted. She's like, well, what would I be to him? I don't know what you're going to be. But it wasn't like I was doing a we. I was just adopting uh-huh. a baby myself. And then I went and did Harriet the Spy and said to my agent, I got to stay in New York. And at the time, Kathy Lee was threatening to quit. I said, get me that gig with Reach. And they said, oh, she's staying, but... They're willing to give you your own show like that. And I said, well, the only thing I'd want to do is Merv Griffin. i just simply rip off his show. I would do exactly Merv Griffin, a talk show where nobody gets hurt, where everybody's friends, where nobody's going to embarrass anyone. Where people inhale helium balloons. You got it. And you have while you're fun, blindfolded. fun cooking segments, and everybody likes each other. It wasn't like scandalized, like, right? So I drew the set. Like I said, this is what I want the set to look like. I drew where the band was supposed to be. I decided I wanted a curtain. Like, I, I knew exactly what I did the logo myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I was totally like, here's how you do it. You were it. doing Seinfeld's Act of the Club all over again. I was doing Merv. 
Murph. Yeah, I just Murph. did Murph. Murph's gone. Yeah, he's not coming down here. Well, actually, he uh, he was around then, <laughs> and he he was so sweet to me and Mike he Douglas because it was a tribute sort of to both of them and Dinah Shore who was gone. But you know, those are the shows I watched as a kid. That's Isn't it funny I, how when you talked before about a world without VCRs and stuff for them when, when when we were kids and we watched TV, I'd watch Dinah Shore. Me too. I'd sit in my house and be like, you know, I don't know who the hell this broad is, but I'm going to watch because the point is, what else was there? There was you nothing. You learned to like those shows right. or, or or digest them because it's like, what the hell are we going to do? McGill Gorilla. It was either that or the Little Rascals. Right. Or, you know, <laughs> Kim, Kimba the White Lion. Remember that? Kimba the White It was Speed Racer. Yeah. So I uh, did the pilot, and then I went to NAPTI, and all of the TV people, which is a convention for television right. executives, uh, station owners, and they came and they said, well, if it doesn't work, are you going to do, like, you know, Geraldo and Jenny Jones? Because those were the shows that were number one at the time. It was, you know, more— Are going to reformat? Well, they were afraid that this wouldn't work because it hadn't been on in 25 years, right? And they were afraid that I would become just like the other shows where people were punching each other and, you know, this oh, I, I had an affair with him and right. they, that I would change the Who's genre. Who's the real father, yeah. Correct. And I said, I will never do that. I will just walk away before I do that. And they said, all right, we'll try it. So they were hesitant. The station owners. <laughs> I can imagine you on a show. It's not your baby. Exactly. And you being, okay, calm yeah, down, everybody. Yeah, everybody, please. I please. couldn't do that. I really could I don't know how they sleep. I watch Warrior still on. I'm like, that guy, exactly. what does he and Connie talk about at night? Okay, today I had two transvestite <laughs> short people and uh, their tall boyfriend. I don't know. How many years do you do the talk show? Six. I told them initially. I had a baby who was one. I said, I'm going to do the show for five years and then I'm quitting before he goes to kindergarten. I said, I just want you to know, before he starts, like, first grade, real school, I'm quitting because this is a toxic business. I can't imagine what it would do to a kid. It's too much for me. And I also knew in in success how much money it was. It was an insane amount of money. Mm -hmm. So I told them from the beginning, I'm only doing uh, five. It was a four-year deal. I said, I'm only doing four years because he would be five. And they bought it. They said yes. But in year one, it was such a big hit that they said, please give us two more years. Please, we'll give you, you know, the Oprah deal. So I agreed to do six. Now, in my fifth year, they said, please sign up. That's when I begged you to do the Jackie Gleason spinoff and you turned to me and said, you you leaned into me very calmly. You said, I can't. I'll never forget this. You leaned to me and you said, I can't. You said, I'm about to sign a deal. I'm going to make, quote, that sick Oprah money. Exactly. It was it's sick Oprah way. money. Yeah. yeah. So I signed on for two more years. And then, you know, in the fifth year, they kept saying, you know, I had one year left. Come on, um, we're going to offer you this. And you didn't. Why? Honestly, Alec, the truth is I felt if you have $100 million in the bank and you're you done. think you need $100 million more, mm-hmm. you're missing your life. Right. I had three children at the time, right? I had three kids under the age of five. And my mother died at 40. I was 39. My show ended right when I was 40. I thought any day they're going to diagnose me with breast cancer, I'm going to be gone. I wanted to go spend the time raising my children the way my mother didn't get to. So there was no amount of money. They kept upping the money and upping the money. And, you know, Dick Robertson. They always buy you. They they, They try. Dick Robertson has said to me, who's still around, the older guy who used to work at Warner Brothers, he said never in his life did he see somebody walk away from that much money. Mm -hmm. He said he still doesn't believe. Sometimes Mm -hmm. he thinks about that moment, you know, because he walked in and he's like, I've been authorized to present you with this, you know, and thinking I was going to go, well, okay. But when you walked away from that, because this is something that I wrestle with sometimes, you want to be more proactive and involved with your kids. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't dispute that. I mean, that's obviously very, very important. I made a lot of my choices around that as well. Like, like beyond this thing of not wanting to have money control your life, was it also, did you become someone you said, I'm sick of her and I'm sick of that? Like, that's Rosie in one stage of the rocket ship, and now it's time to walk away from that. Yes. I had morphed into a different person. Right. right. Because at the beginning of that show, the concept of knowing Barbara Streisand, of knowing Tom Cruise, of knowing you. Like, I had worked with the actors I had worked with. I knew those people, and I was friends with them. But that didn't mean that I felt I was part of the showbiz community. But when that show took off, and I had literally interviewed everyone from Walter Cronkite to, you know, Joan Plowright, like to, you know. And everyone was happy to be on your show. Yes. It wasn't an obligation. Exactly. And it was, you know, it was the first one of its kind. There's a lot of them now. And, you know, Ellen has has done it amazingly well. And she had all of my same producers. She had Jim Paratori. She had the same team. And she went and she did it. And I think she's very good at it. You know, I really do. But I know that I could not have done it any longer than Mm -hmm. I did it. I knew I was not a marathon runner. And then when you stopped, what happened? I was, um, I felt free. First of all, I had just sort of come out. 
right? right? I'd written my first book, and it talked about my being gay and, and all of the struggles that I had with how to, how to announce that. And, and I did it in conjunction with an ACLU case about foster care because I was a foster parent and blah, blah, blah. So I didn't want it just to be about, hey, like, let's talk about my sex life and sexual preference. You know, I, I wanted it to be about something more. So there was a case with uh, the Lofton Cruteau case down in Florida, two men who had adopted this children, and they serial converted from HIV positive to negative because both men were nurses. And they wanted to take the kids away after they zero-converted. So I actually, uh, there's, there was a law at the time in Florida that gay people could not adopt even the foster ch- children they raised. So I, I, I went through this lawsuit. and Well, the book came out three months after 9-11. So it was sort of like nobody really cared. 9-11 happened, and thank God I was off the following May because I, I did not think, and, and I think there was some, you know, intervention from above that I was off during the Bush administration. Mm-hmm. I think I would have probably lost my mind on sure. national television. Right. You know, when I could not believe when my show was off and we were going into war, going to right. Afghanistan, like, right. and Phil Donahue was on again. And, you know, I, I spray painted no war on the back right. of my denim right. jacket. Iraq. Yeah. I could, oh yeah, I couldn't believe it. Right. I just couldn't believe now, it. Now, apropos of that, I mean, obviously, you, like me, you don't hesitate to speak your mind. Right. Now, you went from being ubiquitous, the show, so forth, and do you enjoy that now where you don't, you're not out there and you're not an opinion maker? Yes, but the fall between one and the other extreme was intense and sharp and shocking. How it, so? Well, you know, I, when I was on the cover of Newsweek, you know, when my show premiered, it said The Queen of Nice. I remember holding it up on, on live TV and saying, this is going to bite me in the ass one day because you know what? I'm not that nice. If you ever saw my stand-up act, I go after people and issues that I find abhorrent and repulsive and I present them in a comical way that makes you laugh and yet think. So I knew that that was never, ever the totality of who I was. So um, I was not, you know... Uh, naive enough to think that I was going to simply glide slowly down towards the anonymity, you know. Uh, But it was very, very harsh, and it was very, very quick, and it was a very big shock. Also, I was sued by the magazine company. And when you're sued by a corporation, right, I was sued for $300 million, right, by this corporation, they... Why? I, when my show was ending, I was convinced to do a magazine like Oprah did with uh, my name on it, Rosie. And I was totally had creative control and they had the sales kind of control. What happened was after my show ended, the guy who worked there said, well, you signed a stupid contract and your lawyers weren't good and I own the show and I'm going to do what I want and fired the staff and um, wanted to do like thinner thighs in 30 days and all the things that are not me. And I said, well, you can't do that. And he said, well, you didn't see this loophole in the contract. So I remember saying to um, my uh, friends or to some learned people I knew, who is the toughest and the best female lawyer in New York? And they said, Mary Jo White. (laughs) And Mary Jo White, who uh, brought down the first bombers at the 9-11, the Khalid, Khalil, Khalil, whatever his name is. And she has just been appointed with the Obama administration, she's like a huge monkey muck. Well, I went into her office on a Saturday. She had shorts on and a T-shirt, and I gave her the contract, and I said, now, I want to ask you, am I right or am I wrong? She said, well, you're right. And I said, she goes, but I don't know that that means you're going to win. I said, but I am right. What I'm saying is right, that this man cannot take what I've worked for for 20 years, my name and what it represents, and reformat him because mm. I signed a contract. And make me into Suzanne Summers. Correct. And, or who, who I actually like and think is very well, no, yeah, smart. But it's a, but it's but, a different well, more, more like make me into a Cosmo girl. Okay. Right? And uh, she said, no, you're right. And if you're tough enough, you'll win. But they're going to put you through hell. And they did. I was like on the cover of the post like 93 times. And when you came out of it, you prevailed. Yes. Right. But it was exhausting and expensive and painful litigation. It certainly was. Now, we're going to run out of time. Okay. So I'm going to say two things. Go. And I want to say this carefully because this is not about personal animus or somebody who pissed you off. What's one thing you were involved in that you went to the mat cause-wise or something or an event, something you really went out there and was the most outrageous, that made you the most indignant? You know, I think it would probably be – 
the right of gay people to adopt in Florida. We actually did a canvassing of, of the state of Florida back in, you know, in the 90s when my show was on because I thought how, if we're going to fight this, we're going to lobby it. Let's try to see what the what the temperature is of, of the state and found a surprising amount, like disproportionately large amount of people would prefer that children had no parents than gay parents. That was at the time in the 90s. Now, look how things have changed now, right? The, the ruling has been overturned and, you know, gays are allowed to adopt in pretty much every state, I think, at this point. And we're allowed to get married and we're allowed so a lot has changed since then, but that was quite disheartening at the time. I, I think also, you know, my saying that I do not believe the official story of 9-11 has brought a, a tremendous amount of angst mm-hmm. into my life. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't accuse anyone specifically or mm-hmm. say that I know any answers. Sure. I simply say it defies the laws yeah. of physics. I mean, we're, we're, here we are. It's the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination. Exactly. And people still don't want to talk about that. Well, and that's when, when people come over to me and say, I want to talk to you about 9-11. I said, before we have the conversation, I just want to ask you one thing. Who killed John Kennedy? And if they say Lee Harvey Oswald, I say then we're not going to have a conversation. But if they, you know, because uh, honestly, you either have the benevolent father image in your mind and you can't. Of Uncle Sam. Right. It's that cognitive dissonance, right? You can't hold two opposing ideas in your brain at one time. You can love the United States of America. Bingo. Right. I love love my country and therefore I want to seek this. this, this, Exactly right. And therefore democracy demands dissent. And if you have questions, that's part of being a democracy. And you and I have shared that where people doubt our patriotism because we're critical. Like, I'm going to go off Twitter. It's too much negativity, and it's too much negativity that I don't get in real life. I can walk anywhere, even to, like, you know, my son goes to a military school. These are all Republicans. These are, you know, and hello, Miss O'Donnell. Thank you. You know, like— right. Unbelievably kind people in the world. Right. My experience is. Well, the a, unanimity of Twitter was Correct. Sets that up. And that's what it is. It's like standing on a stage in a darkened comedy club and people throwing shit at you, and you're still trying to do your act. I want to close with one thing. Go. And that is. I watch people who are virtuosic musicians. I mean, I do this announcing for the New York Philharmonic. I just went to Long Long's Benefit on Monday at Carnegie Hall. I have this tremendous, tremendous, almost insatiable appetite for the classical repertoire and the people who play it well. And, and I think to myself, you know, where is that in what we do? Hmm. Like, like acting, you know, these people talk about Olivier and Kevin Klein and, you know, and, and Colin Firth and all the really, really beautifully etched actors of their day. And then I think about you. And I think about to be able to talk on a talk show and be able to communicate the way you did, you remind me in the conversational mode of a classical piano player because mm. you can touch – you can do anything. That's very sweet. You can play anything. You are funny as hell. You're tough. You're smart. You are so many things. You could have done anything. Mm-hmm. You're so tenacious and you're so smart. If this hadn't worked out for you, what was among the fallbacks? What might you have done with your life if you didn't do this? I never had a fallback on purpose. And my dad used to say that all the time. You need a fallback. But I knew that this career was so difficult to succeed in that if you had a fallback, you would fall mm-hmm. back. So I didn't have one. However, I know I would have been a teacher because it was teachers who saved my life. We were in an abusive home. My dad had some issues after my mother died and even before. And it was teachers in the public school system who saved my life, literally. I don't think I would be here. I don't think, you know, when my grandmother died, who had lived with us after uh, when my mother had uh, died, you know, when she died when I was in high school, all the teachers came to the funeral, all the, like we we were five orphan children pretty much who were embraced and taken in by the teachers in our, um, communities. And I I definitely would have been a teacher. I love kids. And it shows. Rosie's fifth child, Dakota, was born this past January. Her oldest, Parker, was 17 at the time. Honey, it's a different gig. Tell me how. Oh my God. First of all, it's so much calmer. You're so much more relaxed. You enjoy every moment so much more. Like this baby, first of all, she's a dream. She, She wakes up she goes to bed at 9 o'clock after a bottle, wakes up at 6, give her a bottle, and she sleeps in the bed with us till about 9, 30, 10. Every night, Can Alec. Have her? That's what, you know, and Michelle, my wife, this is her first kid, goes, let's get another one. I'm like, you're out of your mind. They don't come like this normally. Exactly. No, she's just, it's a dream. And I feel younger because of it. I feel like the, my desire. Alive. Oh, my God, Alec. It, like, turned on every creative, it's just, it rebirthed me. It rebirthed me in a way that I was not expecting and I'm so thankful for. There's something about this experience uh, that's very different from the other kids. You know, when you your first baby, I always say the other kids never get what that first kid got. And I'm not the first kid in my right. family, right? My brother Eddie is. So in a way, this baby feels like the first kid all over again. 
Rosie O'Donnell, entertainer, activist, philanthropist extraordinaire, and above all, a mom to five, with some good hand-me-downs, I suspect. Thank you for doing this, and I love you. And I love you, too, and I'm sending you so many baby things. Don't buy everything, because okay, I have okay, a lot okay, of okay. extras. Here's the thing. You can hear more in-depth conversations in our archive, from Brian Williams to Chris Rock. I don't know about you. I find the business a lot smaller. Uh, no way. Less movies, less, I mean... Less stuff that relates to me. Please wait. You know what? Less stuff that relates to me. Yeah. I'll say that. I'm a very emotional guy, and I often get a catch in my voice. I'm a very patriotic guy. I kind of have a little schmaltz in me, I guess. Mm-hmm. Listen to more at heresthething.org. Here's the Thing is produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo with Chris Bannon, Jim Briggs, Ed Herbstman, Melanie Hoops, Monica Hopkins, Trey Kay, Sharon Mashihi, and Lou Okowski. Thanks to Larry Josephson and the Radio Foundation. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. Don't think that you know everything about your child because there's something that they're not telling you. If I knew that this was going on, I would have went out there and brought my child back home. When Africa Hardy died in 2014, it seemed completely random, but it wasn't. It was part of a pattern. This is Algorithm, a podcast investigating a modern serial killer and how he could have been stopped. Listen to Algorithm Now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.